0: Good morning. Today's passage comes from the Book of Beginnings, Genesis 18, verses 22 to 33. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Well,
1: good morning. Good morning. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, how good it is to be together as your people, called by you, forgiven by you. And Lord, we as your people need to know you better so we can trust you more. So we pray that by your spirit, you will reveal yourself to us today in a fresh way, that we might see you more clearly for who you really are, So, Lord, open our eyes to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Eighteen years ago, my family and I lived in Lake Tahoe when we heard that terrible news of a little 11-year-old girl, J.C. Dugard, who lived just a little ways down the road from us with our four kids who were often outside playing was taken, disappeared, never heard from again until just a couple weeks ago. When it was discovered that she had been taken by a man and a woman who treated her horribly as a slave, essentially, for those 18 years, that event broke up her parents' marriage. Terrible consequences. It was an awful thing things like this, injustices, horrible abuse, suppression, difficulty that we hear about all the time in our world, all the time. And many of us in this room have been victims of some terrible injustices. And when we face injustice, It raises questions for us. It raises for us especially the question of God. Are you just? Lord, if I'm going to trust you, if I'm going to believe in you and put my faith in you, why is the world the way it is? Why do you appear to treat evil and righteousness alike? Why do you allow evil people to get away with so much? Are you truly a God of justice? I like the definition that Bruce Waltke gives of justice. He says, justice is punishing the oppressors, punishing the evil, and rescuing the oppressed. Punishing the evil and rescuing the oppressed. This whole question is important because if we believe God is sovereign and we also believe that he's good, then the question of evil and injustice is a huge question for us. How can it be? And it's important we understand this question and wrestle with it because our trust of God depends on it. If we really don't believe he's good and also just, then it will be very difficult to really trust him with our lives. We love talking about God's love. But sometimes we forget that unless we really believe that God is just, then his love really doesn't mean a whole lot. So we need to understand more about God's justice. Abraham, as we are seeing in the book of Genesis, is on a journey of faith. He's learning to trust God. He's getting to know God for who he really is, and he's wrestling with who this God is. That he's begun to follow and doesn't know all that well who he really is. And all of us, if we walk very long with God, we will come to a place where we have to wrestle with the question of evil and God's justice. This passage today, I think, is one of the best ones in the scriptures, in all the scripture, for us to understand the amazing balance of God's justice. He is just. And he's also merciful and loving. So let's dig into this passage in Genesis chapter 18 and chapter 19. I want to begin with the first section at the end of chapter 18. Larry just read most of it. Where we understand that in the midst of struggling with injustice, it's very important that we keep praying. It's very important that we keep seeking God. That we don't, in fear, turn away from him, but rather, rather we turn to him. And we see Abraham doing that. I want to begin reading in verse 16 of chapter 18. The men rose up from there. Now, Abraham and Sarah had been caring for these three men, one of whom is the Lord, incarnate, and two angels with him, and they've been hosting them. Verse 16, the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and powerful or mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God begins by reminding us and reminding Abraham that he chose him. He made a covenant with him. But he chose Abraham not just to be a member of God's people and go his own way, but rather he chose him to be a blessing in the world. And in particular, to live out righteousness and justice. Punishing evil and rescuing the oppressed. He wants Abraham to be a blessing to others. And that's the same for us, right? God has left us here, called us to be his people so that we might be a blessing in this world. And that we might do that by living out righteousness and by doing justice. Caring for the oppressed. Following God. Helping those who are hurting. That's our calling. That was Abraham's calling. So God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He needs to understand who I am and my justice if he is going to express justice in a fallen world. So... Verses 20 and 21, the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Now, God already knows what's going on in Sodom, right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. But he communicates very clearly to Abraham and to us that God never judges arbitrarily. He always investigates thoroughly before he has to punish evil, punish oppressors, punish those who deserve it. And so he says, yeah, I already know, but I'm going to go down to Sodom. I've heard the outcry of injustice. Now I will go down and see what's really going on. It's a reminder to us, I think, as we think about how do we live out justice in a world that so desperately needs it, is that, like God, we must be very careful to judge. We must be slow to judge the sins of others because, for one, we don't know other people's hearts. We don't know what's going on fully. And so, like God, we must be slow to judge and be careful about judging others. And I'll just confess to you, one of the things that God has worked on a lot in my life over the years is a critical spirit, being quick to judge, thinking I knew what was right and it was easy to point out everybody else who was wrong. And God has shown me so clearly how wrong that is. Like God, we must be careful about judging others. Justice is something that we must submit to Him carefully. So as Larry just read, Abraham hears all this, and he's beginning to struggle some with God's justice. Wait a minute, you're going to go judge Sodom and Gomorrah? What if there's some righteous people there? And he's struggling with this, with God's plan to punish Sodom. And the way he puts it is amazing. I think, as he's wrestling with God, would you treat the righteous and the wicked the same? Is that justice, God? And that's one of the things we wrestle with, right? Sometimes it just seems like God treats the righteous and the wicked the same, and that just is not fair. And so we struggle with that. Are you really just? Can I trust you, God, that you are really good? Is the question Abraham is really asking. In your justice, will you still deal well with the righteous? Are you good as well as just and listen carefully to god's answer they work down from 50 down to 10 if there's just 10 righteous people and abraham isn't thinking perfect people he's just saying innocent people people who have not fallen into the depths of sin that the people in sodom have fallen into if there's just 10 people who are innocent will you spare the city and god says yes i will Now, that teaches us something pretty profound about God's justice, because what he's saying, what God is saying is, if there are 10 people who are innocent there, I will spare all the wicked as well. You notice how God's justice works? He is so merciful that so often he ends up sparing the wicked for the sake of the righteous, for the sake of of the innocent so that all might not be judged equally. Too often God appears tolerant of sin, doesn't he? God, why do you allow it to go on? Why, why does so much evil continue and exist? Why don't you judge this evil person or that evil person or this evil nation or that evil nation? or Why, Lord? But what he's showing us, I think, is that evil... Breaks God's heart. He is not tolerant of it. But so often, he waits, he delays judgment for the sake of the righteous, to give opportunity for repentance, to give opportunity for people to change. Romans chapter 2. Verse 2 says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, practice sinful, practice sin. Do you think lightly, though, of the riches of his kindness, this is Romans 2, verse 4, and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There, Paul says, you think God's tolerance of sin, but He's not. Judgment is coming. But He's expressing kindness to a broken, fallen world to give people opportunity to repent. He's expressing kindness so that people will have an opportunity to be Saved. One last comment on this section. I notice that Abraham is praying to God on behalf of this broken, wicked, awful city of Sodom. And he prays in a wonderful way. He says, um, May the Lord not be angry that I shall speak. But, you know, he's very humble, but he's also bold. He comes directly to God and Ask God, what are you doing? I don't understand you. Explain yourself to me. Help me understand, God, who you are. And it's a wonderful reminder to us that we need to keep pursuing God even when we don't understand what he's doing. Keep turning to him. Share with him. Question if you need to. He can handle that. That's the way we go deeper in our understanding of who God is. And notice that Abraham is interceding for this wicked city. And let me encourage you to intercede for those who are struggling around you and for our culture and our nation. Pray. Don't just stand there and condemn wickedness, but pray. Pray for repentance. Pray for God to move in people's hearts. Pray for blind eyes to be opened, that justice might reign. Intercede for others. Go to Him. Be honest with Him. And wait for His answers. So first he prays, then we see the story develop and we see the real need for judgment though in in Sodom chapter 19 verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground and he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, we'll spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Just as Abraham did hospitality to these two angels, so a Lot does as well. But you'll notice Lot knows the... City he's living in. When they want to spend the night in the square, he says, No, you don't want to do that. (laughs) Come on into my house. You're going to want to be here. And so he argues with them and gets them to come in. Now, remember who Lot is? Lot is Abraham's nephew, right? And we saw him traveling with Abraham from the land of Haran, where Abraham came from, and they're traveling together. And back in chapter 13, They had a disagreement because their herdsmen were quarreling. And so Abraham said, choose wherever you want to go. We better divide up so that we can have our own space. And uh, Lot, do you remember, looked down on the fertile valley of the Jordan. And he said, well, this is the best land around. (laughs) I want that. Abe said, okay, I'll stay up in the desert high country. You can have that. But it also says in chapter 13 that he went down to Sodom, which was an exceedingly wicked city. You see, Lot didn't really care about the morality of the place. He went there. And it's very interesting in verse 1 here of chapter 19, it says he was sitting in the city gate when he saw these two come. In that culture, the city gates, and if you've been to Israel, you've been to that area, part of the world, the ancient cities had... Seats around the entrance to the city gate. And that's where the elders and the leaders of the community sat. And they would welcome people. And if people wanted to come and get judgments or whatever, get input from the leaders, they would show up to the city gate and they leaders would be sitting there. So Lot is what? He's a leader of Sodom. He's become enmeshed in this immoral city so that he is now a leader there. Even though he knows it's wicked, you don't want to spend a night in the square, yet he has become a leader. He's become part of it. It has entered into him. He's compromised what he's seen when he was living with Abraham. He's bought into the culture of Sodom. And we'll see in a moment how much That affected him. And look at verse 4 and verse 5 now as we see the full extent of the wickedness of Sodom. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. It makes clear, the author makes clear, everybody's involved in this sin. And they called to Lot and they said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, we'll go on to that in a minute. Notice the extent of Sodom's sin. It's put kind of in a nice way, but what are they doing? They want to commit homosexual gang rape to these two visitors. It's a picture of utter despicable, evil. Now let me just say something here about homosexuality, since it's in the context here. Some in this room, just by statistical evidence, very likely struggle with homosexual desires. Because of fallenness, we are all twisted by sin, and that's one of the things that's affected a number of people. That desire, that temptation, is not sin. It's not any worse temptation than any other temptation. It's just we all have temptations that eat at us and could destroy us if we give in to them. It's not sin unless you choose to act on it, either through lusting internally, or through homosexual behavior. It's not sin. But activity and lust is sin. So if you have those desires, God's clearly called you to celibacy and to purity of thought. But what we see here in Sodom is that in the moral development of a culture the more you turn from God and the more you turn to immorality, one of the indicators of a culture being far from God is that not only is homosexual activity widely accepted and even applauded, but it becomes just common in the culture. And when that happens, this is the scriptural testimony and you can see it in history, That culture is close to judgment by God. And here you have a whole city not only widely accepting homosexuality but promoting homosexual gang rape. This is a culture that has hit rock bottom. I want to read a passage, though, in Ezekiel because I think it's very interesting as we read this to understand it's not just the homosexuality that led to the judgment of Sodom in Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49 and 50 says this behold this was the guilt of your sister Sodom again I'm in Ezekiel 16 verse 49 and 50 this is the guilt of your sister Sodom she and her daughters had arrogance abundant food and careless ease but she did not help the poor and needy there was no justice Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. What was the sin of Sodom that caused God to remove it? It began with simply pride and arrogance, rejecting God, which led to injustice, which led to abominations, which led to judgment. I want you to notice how Lot is responding in all this, verse 6 and following. Okay, Lot went out to them, shut the door behind him, said, Please, my brothers, speaking to the people of Sodom, don't act wickedly. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men, inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Isn't that wonderful? He's protecting these two men. No, it's a horrible betrayal of his daughters, isn't it? And it's just testimony, I think, that Lot, who chose to live in this place of immorality, had so compromised his faith and so bought into the culture that though he still has a sense of right and wrong, yet he's gotten himself into a moral compromising state where there is no good choice left for him. Do I turn these men over or do I betray my daughters? He can't see anything else. He's so confused morally. It's a horrible thing he offers. Fortunately, the angels have another way out. Verse 9, they said, stand aside. Okay, the people of Sodom. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now we'll treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. So now they're threatening him. But the men, the angels, reached out their hands, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Here you see Lot has so compromised... His relationship with God and his moral uh, standing that he doesn't even know what to do. He's, he can't make a good choice. He's become a fool. And folks, sin does that to you. If you choose to give in to sin and compromise with it, give it a place in your life when you know it's wrong, you become more and more foolish over time and you don't even know how to make a good moral choice anymore. And that's what we see in Lot's life. And his lack of integrity makes even the Sodomites not really respect him. Oh, you're, pff, you're just a fool. You're just trying to judge us. Whatever. They don't, he's lost integrity even with them. And he certainly has with his family as well. Fortunately, the angels rescue him from the crowd. Now let me ask this. Does Lot deserve to be rescued? Let's go on. Verse 12 and following. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city. Bring them out of the place, for we're about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. He doesn't even have integrity with them. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Again, here's Lot, unable to make a good choice, even to obey God right in the face of him speaking to him. So the man seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought him them outside, one said, Escape for your life, do not look behind you, do not stay anywhere in the valley, escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. Let's look at God's mercy in the midst of judgment. You see the judgment is coming. But God, in his mercy, takes Lot by the hand, even though Lot can't make a good choice, and pulls him and his family out of the city that is about to be destroyed by God, even though he's impotent, he can't make a good choice, and even though he's betrayed his family and he's compromised his faith. And so, you see God's mercy in the next few verses as Lot prays to God now. Talks to the men, but he's essentially praying to God in verse 18. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. I found grace. And you have magnified your loving kindness. You've, you've given me grace and loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I can't escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Now behold, the town is, this town is near enough to flee to, and it's small. Please let me escape there is it not small, that my life might be saved? He said to them, Behold, I grant this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you've spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. I think this is a wonderful picture of God's mercy, isn't it? God rescues Lot, pulls him out of the city, and Lot is so afraid. He goes, Oh, I don't want to go in the mountains. I'm scared of the mountains. Can't I go to to, to this little city so that I'll be safe there because I'm afraid of the mountains? Uh, Again, Lot has gone from selfishness, choosing the land he wanted, to moral compromise, to betrayal of others, to indecision and fear in his life. Do you see the progression of sin, the way it works when you give in and you compromise with it? He's terrified, but notice the grace of God. Okay, you're afraid? I'll spare that city. I will spare all the wicked people in that city just so you can go there. Isn't God's mercy amazing? It really is. But this all raises a question for me, and that is, why in the world would God save Lot? (laughs) Right? I mean, he's a bad guy. He's a bad dude. Lord, why in the world would you save Lot? I want to give you three reasons why I think God saved Lot. First, because Abraham prayed for him. Abraham prayed for him. God, won't you spare the righteous? Will you actually actually destroy? And I'm sure he's thinking of his own nephew living there, but... I think he's praying for Lot and the others there. And even though Lot was not a good guy, from what we can see, God answered Abraham's prayer. Let this be a lesson to all of us that God listens to our prayers. He listened to Abe's prayer, Abraham. He listened to Lot's prayer and let him go to the city instead of the mountains. Our prayers for others matter. Don't give up praying for those, even those who seem so terribly lost in sin. Don't give up. Because God truly does listen to and respond to our prayers. Maybe you won't see the results, but He does. Secondly, why I think God saved Lot, because God loved Abraham. Notice verse 29. At the end of this section, this story, we didn't get a chance to read it all, but it says verse 29. Thus it came about, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. God remembered Abraham and so he saved Lot. (laughs) God had made a covenant with Abraham and said, you will be a blessing to all the nations, and because I love you, Abraham, I'm remembering you, I will save your nephew. Because God was faithful to the covenant he'd made with Abraham and promised to make him a blessing to all nations, he saved Lot. That's kind of mysterious to me. I'm not sure I understand all that. But it's because God loved Abraham. But it's a reminder to us that when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, you become part of the covenant people of God. And God will use you in your life to bless others, even others who don't deserve it. You become a blessing to the culture around you. And so God wants us to what? Live out justice. Live out loving kindness. To be just as he is just if we will walk with him. what has lost his opportunity to be a blessing, hasn't he? But Abraham has not. And I'm amazed as I just have observed life and how God works, how God will use one godly man or woman in a family, in a neighborhood, in a business, in a job to bring incredible blessing if you will just be faithful to God. God will bless many others. Finally, why did God save Lot? And this is a mysterious one to me. Because God saw Lot's heart. That it was righteous. And you say, well, wait a minute. Look at all the terrible choices he was making in his life. His actions were bad, but according to the testimony of the New Testament, in Second Peter, chapter 2, his heart was good. Amazing, isn't it? How our choices can be so bad, but our heart, according to God in His grace, can be good. Listen to Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 6 and following. If God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, notice that Peter says, Sodom and Gomorrah are an example to us that God will judge sin. But then he goes on, And if he rescued righteous Lot, what? <laughs> who was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Notice Peter says, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Is a story that we need to remember because it teaches us two things. God will judge, but God also will rescue those who in their hearts are righteous. Why did God rescue Lot? Because in his heart, he was tormented by the sin that he himself compromised with. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God merciful? Isn't God marvelous? God must judge sin, but He will do, and what this story teaches us, He will do all He can to bring mercy and compassion and loving kindness on humankind. And if we will only turn to Him and receive the gift of life in Jesus Christ, we can be spared the judgment that's to come final part of the passage, the end of the chapter. We don't have time to read it all, but it gives us the consequences of compromise. Lot's saved, but he goes to the city and it doesn't turn out well. He gets afraid there, so he ends up in the mountains anyway. And he's in the cave with his two daughters because his wife compromised, looked back and became a pillar of salt. And his two daughters, who have already been betrayed by him, Say, you know what? Dad's not going to help us out. He's not going to find husbands for us. We're going to get stuck here. We're never going to have children. So what in the world are we going to do? So what do they do? They get him drunk and each of them on successive nights sleep with him to become pregnant by him so they can have children because they don't see any other way out. Lot gets betrayed by his own daughters because he betrayed them. So the consequences of sin just go on. And the two children that his daughters have are the forebears of the Ammonites and the Moabites who became bitter enemies of the descendants of Abraham from then on, right up to today. The consequences of sin are great. So though God is merciful, sin still pays its wages, folks whenever you hear something like, well, I know this is not the right thing to do, but I know God will forgive me, you're talking to a fool because there will be consequences to their sinful choices. Sin always pays its wages, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. Terrible end of the story. What can we learn from this story then? I want to highlight four things quickly. Number one, God is just. He will judge sin. He is holy. He can't tolerate it. If it appears that he doesn't care about sin and evil, it's simply because he's restraining himself for a time for the sake of the righteous and to give the unrighteous an opportunity to repent. So the story of Sodom is a reminder that God is just. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, it's the same God. He is just, and He will bring judgment. But secondly, God is also merciful and loving, and He looks for every opportunity to show mercy before He judges. And again, notice how merciful He is in this Old Testament story. If you ever hear, well, the Old Testament God's cruel and just, but the New Testament God, He's really loving... It's the same God, folks, and you see just as much mercy and love in the Old Testament as in the New. And in fact, you see maybe more judgment in the New Testament than you do in the Old, if you read carefully. God is merciful and loving and will look for every opportunity to bring mercy where he can. Third, sin has consequences. Lot Lot experienced this. Even when God is merciful, sin, sin still has terrible consequences. And then fourth and finally... Prayer is powerful. Never stop praying. Never stop wrestling with God when you don't understand Him. Never stop praying for those who are struggling with sin no matter how far depraved they seem because you never know what God will do and you never know what's in their hearts. This passage shows a wonderful picture of both the justice and the love and compassion and mercy of God. It's one of the best in all the scriptures for seeing that balance. But there's even a greater example. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there we see that God must judge sin. But we also see that God in his incredible compassion and mercy and love took that punishment on himself. The punishment you and I deserved. And therefore it shows the perfect balance of both justice justice and mercy. And so what are we called to do? Simply put our trust in what he has done. Because those, and the scripture makes this very clear, who do not put their faith in what he's done will be judged. Judgment is coming. God is not tolerant of sin, but he gives grace to the humble who are willing to trust in what Jesus did for us. We want to take communion together now to celebrate the cross. So let me begin with prayer as the men get ready to come forward and then we'll serve you the elements. Lord, what a wonderful picture of who you are. A God of justice who truly must judge sin. But a God of incredible compassion and love and mercy who knowing that we had no way to deal with our sin of ourselves and that we would end up in judgment chose to take the punishment on yourself. Lord, that kind of love is so far beyond us. We can do nothing except give you praise and thanks for what you have done. So we thank you as we celebrate now through communion, the cross of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. As we pass out the elements and then we will take them all together, I'll lead you as we take the bread and then we'll pass out the cup and take the cup. Just keep this in mind and think about what God has done for you. On that night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it and he knew that the disciples gathered around him would all deny him that very night. But he says, okay, you'll deny me, I know that. But I'm inviting you back to a feast, a feast of forgiveness. I'm inviting you back because I love you. I know you will fail me, but I'm inviting you back to enjoy what I have done for you. And so God says to everyone here today, I'm inviting you to this feast, this feast of forgiveness to celebrate what Jesus has done for every one of us in this room.